From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is uh, Wednesday morning, October the 8th, I believe it is, uh, 2020. And uh, we are... uh, Got a good show lined up for you this morning. We're going to be talking first with uh, Paul Heinz of uh, Seven Days. He's got a very interesting cover story in the paper coming out today. Should be on the website uh, very soon. It's all about how much more affordable is Vermont in uh, almost four years into the governorship of uh, Phil Scott, who has been making affordability his number one agenda item during these during this time. Of course, uh, the COVID-19 crisis has thrown a curveball into that. I almost said curved, as in curved-19. Curveball into that whole situation, but the uh, uh, we have a good accounting of the overall, what's going on overall from uh, Mr. Heights of Seven Days. We'll be talking to him about it in just a moment. Uh, in the second half hour of the program this morning, we're going to be speaking with Ricky Gard Diamond. Uh, she is the author of a book called Screwnomics, all about how women are particularly vulnerable to uh, economic situations which are uh, controlled mainly by men and which frequently don't work out very well for, uh, for women. Uh, there's a new organization underway called uh, An Economy of Our Own, in which uh, Ricky Gard-Diamond is involved. She'll be telling us about that in the uh, second half hour of the program this morning. Later on, we'll be joined by a couple folks from Vermont Fish and Wildlife. Going to be talking about the overall picture of things out there during this time of year when there are several different hunting seasons uh, sort of simultaneously happening or soon to gear up. And uh, at the same time, we'll be talking about a new podcast that's out from the Department of Fish and Wildlife sort of putting a new public face on that department. Uh, it'll be an interesting conversation about that in the second hour of the program. But first, let's welcome Paul Heinz to the show. Paul, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Hey, Dave. Thank you for having me. And uh, I must commend you on this terrific story that you have uh, ready to go out in today's paper. Um, I gather you've been working on it uh, for a few weeks. And, uh, uh, it, there's a lot of a lot of material in there, including some it's a interviews. With, um, say it again. It's a little bit long. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's it's plenty to read. It'll give people you know something to chew on for a bit and uh, be ready to uh, sit down and take a few minutes to uh, read the article because it's uh, it really is it presents a, a lot of different takes on whether Vermont is affordable. What's what's your overall picture here? Has affordability improved in the state? I mean, leaving even, say, let's roll it back to, roll the tape back to, I don't know, January before the COVID crisis hit. Uh, was it getting better? Well, I think first, before you can even start to answer that question, you have to understand what the question means. And I think that one of the real challenges with this whole concept of affordability is that, um, you know, it's sort of obvious at one level what it means, right? It's, um, you know, how much you're making, how much you're spending. Um, but yep. I think that there's really not much consensus around um, how you measure that and, um, and you know, what, what factors go into this concept of affordability. So just to back up a little bit, and I'm not trying to dodge your question. <laughs> well, I'm kind of trying, trying to dodge your question. But um, to back up a little bit, the, um, you know, this term, uh, 
we've, we've talked about affordable housing for a long time, um, and we've sort of applied affordable to specific uh, measures. But this idea of affordability kind of as a standalone concept um, is a little bit new, actually. It's something that uh, started coming up in um, around 2012, 2013 in Vermont politics. Uh, it's something that Phil Scott, uh, when he was lieutenant governor, really started to talk about at that time. Um, and And more and more, the Vermont Republican Party um, made it kind of central to their platform. Um, so I actually wrote a story, um, another very long and ponderous cover story um, in January 2017, just as Phil Scott was taking office as governor, um, looking at what this term meant um, and trying to trying to get at how you know how in the future we could measure um, whether he had succeeded in making Vermont more affordable. Um, and, you know, at the time that I wrote that story, I, I didn't really have a good conclusion. It was sort of, it was unclear back then. Um, the governor, um, you know, he was still talking about affordability quite a bit, but he, he still had a hard time um, making clear how how we'd measure it, right? How we would even know if, if the state is more affordable. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, so I went back to him, you know, while reporting this story to kind of get a sense of whether he um, has a better way of explaining it these days or a better way of defining it. Um, and I got the sense that he, he still doesn't really. You know, it's sort of, I think for him, it's a sense, right? It's sort of how does how does it feel? Does the state feel like it's a place where you can live and, um, and be well off? Um, you know, and I think we all understand that sense. But if you don't, if you're not really able to define it, if you can't figure out some metrics, um, then it's difficult to be able to say definitively the state is more or less affordable four years in. Yeah, I mean, I think there are various discrete ways you can kind of look at this and just take the big expenses that a typical household has. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, child care, certainly for, for families with uh, with young children, is a huge expense. But uh, even putting that one aside for a moment, uh, let's take housing um, you know, I think about the town, the city where I live, Montpelier. I've been looking. We, my wife and I, have just been our jaws have been dropping recently as we look at the the ads for houses that are going on the market. And it seems there's a, quite a bit on the market lately. I think a lot of people are looking to cash in on this phenomenon of uh, folks moving from down country to you know this sort of COVID exodus or whatever we're seeing here in Vermont. And uh, there've been a number of coverage. Uh, stories, uh, I think, including seven days about this phenomenon where real estate's booming in the state in many areas. Um, and I'll just tell you that the, the prices, the, the sort of sticker prices we're seeing on these houses in Montpelier, you know, if we were just starting out, we, we would have a tough time affording a house in the city, my wife and I. Uh, our, our kids, yeah. you know, and, and we sort of, we were getting into our, you know, I, I think I bought my house, first house within somewhere within, uh, you know, within three years of my 30th birthday, shall we say. And we now have so very uh, two, <laughs> within, uh, and we know not really because we now have, uh, a couple, two sons who are, uh, within each within three years of his 30th birthday. And there is no way that even, in, even combined with their significant others, uh, incomes could they afford the housing prices in Montpelier now? They couldn't get close. I mean, certainly not, and keep their keep their housing bite under thirty percent of their inc- of their combined incomes. Um, and so, I think that tells a story that really says things are over. And it's not just under the governorship of Phil Scott, but under the really in the last 
20 or 30 years, things have become significantly less affordable here in Vermont. Um, and I think it's a real, it's a real problem for our economy and for this generation coming up now. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a, I think it's a very fundamental problem when kids grow up and then can't afford to live in their hometowns. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It should at least, should at least be an option, right? Shouldn't it? No, totally, totally. And I mean, I, so I, I think you're kind of getting at the way that I tried to answer this question, which is to, to figure out, you know, what are these, what are these major cost drivers? And the, the legislature's joint fiscal office, um, put together a really helpful document, um, called the basic needs budget. I'm sure you're familiar with it from your reporting. Um, uh, but it basically, mm-hmm. um, it, it tries to show, um, you know, what an average sort of working class family, lower income family, um, would spe- you know would spend money on just to get by you know what are the most fundamental needs that a family has and how much do those cost and, and one of the reasons for the exercise is to figure out um, if you're making um, the the living or if you're excuse me if you're making the minimum wage um, here in Vermont are you going to be able to afford all the basic things that you need um, and of course the answer to that is no um, they, they come up with sort of a, a livable wage um, based upon that um, that budget of expenses. So, um, you know, I took a look at that. And, of course, this is different for every family, but, but the Joint Fiscal Office does a good job of looking at, you know, say a single person living in a, in, in a more urban part of the state um, or perhaps a family of four with two kids, you know, one working parent um, in, a, in a rural part of the state. And so if you look at, at, at kind of the, the expenses that they come up with, um, it's, it's not at all surprising to find that in many cases the really key cost drivers are housing. Um, you know, housing is almost always first, unless you've got kids, in which case childcare might be first. Um, and then after that, you've got things like transportation, food, um, and uh, healthcare. Those tend to be the, the really big ones. Um, so I tried mm-hmm. to take a look um, in reporting this story at how uh, costs uh, have changed for each of those individual items. Um, and then also kind of explore the, the notion of how uh, different people define affordability, right? There, there is a real um, partisan or at least ideological divide here. Um, it, it tends to be that uh, people like Phil Scott, the governor, and other um, Republicans and other conservatives, when they're thinking about affordability, they're really thinking about tax burden. Um, they're thinking about the growth of government. Um, and that's definitely one of the key ways that the governor thinks about um, how to make Vermont affordable, right? He, he, he says this all the time, um, keeping taxes, um, you know, restraining the growth of taxes is a really essential way he believes to keep the state affordable or make it more affordable. Whereas, um, you know, talk to someone like uh, Doug Hoffer, the state auditor, who's a Democrat progressive, um, you know, he makes the argument that really, um, state and local taxes, if you actually break it out by income level, state and local taxes make up a comparatively small amount of uh, a lower moderate income family's um, budget. And one of the reasons for that is that we've got a pretty progressive tax code compared to other states. Um, and so while wealthier Vermonters um, are paying um, a much bigger percentage of their um, income in, in state and local taxes, um, that's that's not true uh, for lower income Vermonters. So uh, people like Hoffer, I spoke with House Speaker Mitzi Johnson for the story, and of course David Zuckerman, who's running to um, uh, to replace Scott. 
uh, they make the argument that really the way you tackle affordability isn't by keeping taxes down necessarily. Um, it's by trying to um, address the rising cost of health care, let's say, or housing, um, you know, all the other cost drivers like that. And so there's a real there's a real split in not only how you define it, but how you even begin to approach this question. The uh, Another big expense, you, you mentioned it very briefly, but I think let's zero in on it a little bit, is food. And um, one of the amazing things, I've mentioned this before on the show here, but uh, occasionally uh, we go over to New Hampshire where my wife grew up, grew up and to visit family and so on, and we'll stop on the way back at a, at a, uh, at a supermarket called Market Basket in Warner, which is just sort of this side of Concord. And uh, it is amazing to me how much less expensive individual food items are at that supermarket in New Hampshire than they are at the Shaw's stores or the Hannaford's here in Vermont. Uh, it's just, I mean, you'll see stuff that, uh, that you know, a 12-pack of beer might be uh, 16 or 17 bucks in Vermont and for the same brands, even Vermont brands, <laughs> they're three or four dollars cheaper at the, uh, at that store in New Hampshire. And, uh, and, and, you know, repeat that over and over again for cabbage cheese. Uh, you know, we, so we sort of did a survey of, uh, of Vermont products that, uh, so it's, you know, it's not transportation costs, folks. <laughs> these are, these are products made here in, here in Vermont and you can get them significantly for significantly less money. In, uh, in New Hampshire. And I sort of, uh, you know, I mentioned that before on the program and I, I've even suggested that a governor or other prominent Vermonters who want to really zero in on affordability might want to call up the folks who have these, this chain of supermarkets uh, called Market Basket and try to get them to open a couple in Vermont and, and bring in some more competition here. I mean, why, why is it that, that a, uh, you know, a 12 pack of, uh, of shed IPA is 19 bucks at Shaw's and is often like 13.99 at, at, in New Hampshire. Do you think, Paul? Well, first of all, I should say that that particular market basket in Warner, New Hampshire is a great store. And I also patronize the Dunkin' Donuts, um, the gas station next door quite a bit when I'm driving mm-hmm. out of Boston. Um, yeah. but putting that aside, uh, uh, you know, one of the, actually, I think one of the most helpful parts of the story, um, that, that I wrote is, is nothing that I actually did, but it's a chart that my colleague Andrea Suazo put together for the print edition, and it should be in the online edition as well. Um, and what it does is it, it basically um, charts, uh, it compares wages in six New England states um, to the cost of living in the six New England mm-hmm. states. And yep. um, it's it's really helpful because it kind of shows you um, where we stand compared to the national average. So if you're looking at um, the cost of living, um, and so that's sort of uh, the prices for the most part of what you're paying. Um, and th- these are national statistics gathered by the by the federal government. Um, here in Vermont, uh, our our cost of living is about three percent higher than the national average. Um, what's really interesting is that uh, New Hampshire's cost of living is actually six percent higher than the national average. And it's a little bit counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, if you go down to Massachusetts, it's about uh, nine, almost ten percent higher than the national average, right? So, it is it is more expensive to live in those places, believe it or not, according to these, these you know statistics from the federal government. They're real, um, but the real difference, I think, is that if you then look at how wages compare to the national average, 
in each of these states. We are way below. So we are almost 17% below the national average in terms of wages, whereas in New Hampshire, it's right about at the national average. Um, hmm. And and of course, it, if you look at Massachusetts, they're way above the national average. Their their wages are about twenty, almost twenty seven percent higher than the national average. So wow. I think it's really important when you're thinking about affordability is to look at the delta um, between those two things, right? Between sure. what you're earning and what you're paying. Um, and it is definitely true when you look at these at this chart, you'll see there's a there's a wide chasm um, or deep chasm, I guess, between. Um, you know what you're earning and what you're paying here in Vermont, um, and that's that's greater than in other states. But the reason for it uh, is not actually because of prices; it's because of wages. It's because our wages are are just so low um, compared yeah. to other places. The only other state in New England that that is where it's lower is Maine. Um, they're about twenty, uh, almost twenty one percent below the national average. I know I'm throwing a lot of well, numbers out there, but the chart makes it really clear, um, and I think it, it really shows that it's bringing up the wages um, that I think is sort of key to Big part of it. the state more affordable. Yeah. Why do you think it might be, you were saying that Vermont wages lag our neighbors in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, for instance. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I don't actually know the answer to that question. I'm, I'm not an economist. I didn't get into that level of detail. Um, but, uh, you know, we're pretty far away from an urban center. I think that's fairly common. Um, in, in places that are geographically and demographically um, like us. But, um, I, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on that. I will say that um, it, it is different depending on the on sort of your income level. So uh, people who are at, you know, at, at lower, lower income jobs in Vermont tend to do better than their counterparts in, in some other states just simply because our minimum wage is higher um, than in a lot of places, a lot higher than New Hampshire, for example, um, yep. and a lot of places in the South, right? So if you're a minimum wage worker, you may actually be earning more in Vermont than you would elsewhere. Um, but typically where you where you really feel it um, is uh, at higher income jobs, right? If you're a doctor here in Vermont, you are certainly not going to make as much as you would make in Boston or New York City. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that uh, one of, I think, the key debates in this gubernatorial campaign uh, is whether the governor made the right decision to veto two bills that would have raised Vermont's minimum wage. Uh, the first one would have would have raised it higher um, for a longer period of time. Um, that was vetoed, and then um, after that, a more modest minimum wage increase was passed by the legislature, and legislature overrode Scott's veto. So that takes effect um, starting this coming year. That will raise the minimum wage a little bit um, higher than it would otherwise have been, um, but mm-hmm. you know, to a lot of uh, liberals, it, it doesn't go high enough. Of course, the governor argues that's not the way you actually put more money into people's pockets uh, when you simply raise the minimum wage. You're going to make it harder to do business here. You're going you know, to hurt businesses, reduce the number of jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So um, even on that, there's quite a bit of disagreement. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to uh, for somebody to uh, study that in the next uh, three or five years or whatever and see whether, I mean, the, the, the sort of counter-argument has been that we are likely to lose some of our our, our mom-and-pop stores and other places, other businesses that um, to frequently rely on people making pretty low wages, including part-time workers, some, some folks, very young teenage workers, Etc. I mean, there's this argument that that uh, 
that this is uh, income that is they're not relying on it to live. They're still living at home or whatever, or it's and this is a supplemental job for some folks and that kind of thing. But certainly, if you are if you are trying to get by uh, and actually live in Vermont or anywhere on the wages we're talking about now. What is the is the federal minimum wage? Last I checked, it was seven seventy five. Is that still the case? Uh, I don't know if I had that sounds right. It's certainly in that ballpark. Yeah, and and uh, and and Vermont's. I mean, Vermont's minimum wage will be something in the order of five bucks an hour more than that after yeah, these we're at, increases. Yeah, we're at ten ninety six right now, and then yeah. um, the the legislation that takes effect um, this coming winter will over two years bring it up to about twelve fifty five. So I think that's right. Would be starting twenty twenty two. It'd be twelve fifty five. Yeah, which is which again is is almost five bucks more than the federal minimum, and and uh, and, and that is that's getting to be a rather large difference. I mean, I don't know what the real impacts of that are, but it's pretty just on that on those raw numbers. It's uh, it's getting noticeable, you know. Um, yeah, it's also you, significantly less than what was originally proposed by the legislature. Right? There was yeah uh, the the original aim was to move it to fifteen dollars an hour i think by twenty twenty four twenty twenty five um mm-hmm. and so it, it it will continue to increase because it is chained um to uh inflation but um but it will not get to fifteen dollars an hour for some years after that i don't know off the top of my head how long it will take yeah so um we are gonna it looks like as if current trends continue we are going to uh, continue in an affordability squeeze on a variety of fronts here in vermont for uh, some time to come uh, paul heinz of seven days thank you so much for shining a light on these issues and and also for coming on our air this morning and talking about them with us uh, i really appreciate it well thank you for having me i really appreciate being on all righty we'll uh Go to a bottom of the hour break for some CBS News here on the Dave Graham Show at WDEV FM and AM. And uh, when we return, we're going to be talking about uh, some women talking about trying to form an economy of all. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Thanks for staying with us into the second half hour of our program on this Wednesday morning. And uh, I want to bring in my next guest, uh, Ricky Gard Diamond, is a writer who lives in Montpelier uh, for a long time. She was uh, editor of uh, Vermont Woman Magazine, and she is uh, the author of a book called uh, Screwnomics. Uh, it's all about how women uh, are basically shortchanged in uh, the way our economic system works and uh there is a new push on that i think maybe has uh, developed out of some of the ideas included in the book uh called uh, an economy of our own and this is an effort by women by feminists to uh, start building economic structures which are designed and and built by women and uh it is hoped are more uh conducive to uh, women's well-being 
And uh, we have, I'm very happy to say, Ricky Gard-Diamond joining us this morning on the air. Ricky, thanks so much for getting on the air with us. Oh, good morning, David. It's good to be with you. And uh, this is a, a quite a, an exciting idea or set of ideas uh, that that uh, you are talking about here. I was looking at the website, and, and it seems as though, uh, I mean, it starts out with a pretty powerful critique that essentially all the structures of what we think of as the economy uh, in today's world essentially were designed and built by men, and uh, that has had a, a quite a number of powerful and not necessarily beneficial effects. Uh, what would you say are the major effects that uh, need correcting here? Well, I, I think that uh, what we're, we're saying in an economy of our own is that there are certain um, <clears throat> assumptions that we're saying out loud that aren't often talked about, and, and you just named one of them, that none of our financial systems have been invented by women and that they've left out a good deal, uh, including uh, a lot of what uh, w- women uh, do all the time. And and anything that's named uh, women's work is automatically uh, discounted in some way. Um, we're also talking about, um, we think racism is another big piece of what is overlooked. I mean, the system that we're talking about has been developed not by every man, but by a fairly, no, a, a very elite group of a particular uh, race, a particular education, um, and a p- particular uh, privileged group of men. And uh, so while slavery ended 156 years ago, uh, systemic racial exploitation is very much in place, and, and we've been seeing that um, vividly recently. Um, and it, it's only been like the last 50 years that uh, even though women have always worked, uh, the last 50 years is, is when we've seen a majority of women and young mothers especially who are entering the, the job market. That's that's a fairly new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it's useful to think about how new to the system we really are. And um, e- even though uh, we've hurdled educational and legal barriers, it's, it's taken us a while. I mean, a lot of women are surprised when I uh, remind them that it was 1974 before... Um, women could open a bank account without a male co-signer, without their father or their husband signing on their bank account with them. Their signature wasn't enough. That's fairly recent. And so uh, what we're saying is that um, we really, you look around us and you, you see this growing inequality and you see environmental destruction and we're saying we really cannot afford more of this alpha male only business as usual. Do you think that as uh, women entered the workforce, say back in the 1970s, that um, I mean, I've, I've wondered sometimes whether there was too much of sort of imitating male behaviors going on and not enough of not only are we here, but we're shaking it all up right now. Um, do you know what I'm saying? I, I, I mean, I do know. Uh, I do know. In fact, 
I just wrote about this at uh, on my my column at Ms. Magazine. Um, I was writing about a, a venture capitalist named Eileen Lee, who um, has created a word called um, unicorn. And when I mentioned it to my my daughter, who's in California working in Silicon Valley, she knew right away what I was talking about. A unicorn is a digital business that, um, you know, makes a quick return of billions to its investors. And she was running this investment company, and what did she call it? She called it Cowboy Ventures, and I made the joke that, you know, if she called it Barbie Ventures, nobody would have taken her seriously. But she (laughs) invented this word called unicorn, and, um, and I was just astonished that she was she had a huge staff who were collecting data and um and, and really looking at trying to find okay who's going to be the next unicorn where do we need to invest our money and meanwhile you know the skies in California are orange from all of these fires and i'm thinking all of that brain power going into this uh notion of where are we going to make another billion, you know, uh, when, when you see the environment around you and, and people homeless and losing their jobs and everything that's going on. It's, um, it's not the route to um, success. I mean, that's why I, I said uh, the title of that piece was uh, Why Labor is a Woman's Word and Cowboys Can't Be Trusted. I, I think we don't want to put our faith in in creating more billionaires, which we're doing. We've got more billionaires than ever with bigger fortunes than ever. And that's a trend that can't help but continue unless we uh, change our policy and our ways of thinking about how the economy works. If a Wall Street investment house is uh, part of the problem, is it a good thing or a bad thing when a woman works her way up through the ranks at Goldman Sachs or someplace like that? Well, um, I, I, I can't answer that. I, I'm not, you know, in the in the club. But um, but I do know that uh, women who who do it, well, it's like it's like um, any uh, any Oakley. Uh, anything you can do, I can do better. So she has to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she, she's got to be, uh, I call them, uh, you know, a male impersonators, really. She has to be tougher than anybody. And often um, she is the first to, to, be, to be cut, you know, to be, um, there, there are lots of stories about Wall Street women being, going to the top and then um, crashing. And uh, that's another story. Yeah, I mean. Showing that some fundamental inequality still exists, even when the outward signs all point to uh, sort of success and maybe even beat, you know mm-hmm. the woman beating the system or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. There, there are still forces oh. there which are ready to get you or something. Uh, so, yeah. what, what, what sort of economy is envisioned? Uh, by folks who are involved in this an economy of our own uh, project. Well, um, I, I don't. I don't know that I can answer that really. I mean, when you look at our advisory board, we're interested in a great many things. 
um, the environment, um, the business community, the um, uh, people of color uh, who are have a special interest in, in uh, creating their own banks. Um, so there are so many. I mean, the economy is so complex that there are so many um, places to look and places to talk about and places to, you know, put our heads together and think about restructuring. So um, there's no simple answer to that. But but we're, we're beginning um, some webinar conversations online um, about two, two sets of um, ideas. One is a collective um, economies with um, people talking about from people, we've got a diverse group of people from Philadelphia and oh, I'm saying women from Philadelphia and uh, from Oakland, California, which are two um, black communities that are struggling with gentrification and, and what that results in with homelessness and all kinds of problems. And so we're sitting them down together to talk about uh, what's happening with their passionate interests, which are two. One is public banking, and uh, the other solution is uh, collective corporations. So um, we think we're kind of unique in, in putting those two ideas together. I mean, it's complex enough to think about public banking or to think about collective corporations, but when you put them in a, in a room together to talk up together about, well, what if we did both of these things? Um, I understand and they're actually beginning to talk about that in Philadelphia, but um, we think that's kind of unique. Uh, one of the things that I, I thought that that, that uh, you might uh, talk about and tell me if this is a is a goal is is a is a narrowing of uh, wealth and income gaps is that uh, one thing you want to see? Well, yes, and um, and generally, uh, what happens when women enter a, a work field? Uh, salaries go down. We'd like it to go the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> sure, uh, but I mean, I, I guess um, you know we've heard a lot of talk in, in recent times about about this uh, growing the growing wealth gap in the United States, the growing uh, income uh, inequality in our country, and um, mm-hmm. is 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 it is it a I guess I should ask more basically, is it a goal of uh, an economy of our own to uh, to try to slow the growth in those gaps, or, or to try to reverse and uh, and maybe close the gaps to some extent. Yes, I think so. But I think um, more importantly, what we want to do is see more women and and uh, more more people involved in a more democratic economic system. Um, mm-hmm. One where decision making is not done only at the top of this pyramid, you know, where um, billionaires make most of the rules. Um, we, we want more say-so in how decisions get made. Mm-hmm. We've, got, we've got good examples, like um, in Mondragon, um, Spain, in the Basque region in Spain, there's a co- company called Mondragon, 
which is um, a cooperative that went through this big crisis that we just went through in 2008. And they, they employ something like 81,000 people now, and they've grown to be really huge. They were uh, founded in 1956 and were tiny, but now they, they have their own university. They have their own banking system. And um, when the crisis came, the decision-making was the cooperative owners of these, this big corporation, and they put people first. And so people uh, didn't lose their jobs, didn't lose their income, didn't go, become homeless, um, you know, weren't evicted, uh, because people collectively made decisions that enabled everybody to survive. Let's uh, bring a caller into the conversation. We have a listener on the line. Uh, I believe it's Fred who's on the road somewhere on the Barry Montpelier Road. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Um, I was raised by my mother and by my grandmother. And, uh, to play devil's advocate and stuff, women live longer than men and stuff. And the wealth that they've been left is their real estate, and a lot of times mutual funds. And women have control of, elderly women have a significant uh, control of, of mutual funds. And I think that there ought to be, uh, if she's going to promote uh, livable wages and uh all, all, the, all of her agenda there and stuff. I think that she needs to start a thing that women vote their uh, mutual funds things to change it and stuff. And the man made the money, but they left it to their wives. And I think I'll stop there and just listen online, on the air. Okay, thanks for the call, Fred. Yep, bye. Uh, Ricky Gard Diamond, your thoughts... Um we, do are, are elderly, or especially elderly women who maybe have have some mutual fund investments, uh, are they should they be doing more to try to flex their economic muscle here? Well, yes, I think they could, and I, I think that uh, the whole idea of uh, changing the rules is is somewhat um, new to most of us, and so uh, yeah, there's a lot more that we can do. And part of what an economy of our own is about is um, urging women to talk amongst themselves, talk with each other about things we don't usually talk about, which is the economic system and the rules that we all uh, live by without thinking about them much. So we're mm-hmm. urging everybody to think about them more and to imagine uh, another kind of uh, economic system with different rules, um, more more mutual funds are, are a good example of the kind of mutuality that um, we, we want to encourage. Is there a, uh, uh, let, let, let's say you, you uh, develop an agenda for uh, certain economic policies and uh, strategies for improving the economy, et cetera, um, and uh, th- and that there are some men out there who uh, who support these ideas and and uh, want to yeah. uh, want to bring the same sort of changes that uh, that your group is talking about. Uh, w- is there a role for men in all of this? 
Absolutely, absolutely. We we've got uh, a wonderful uh, man on our advisory board that you may have heard of, David Corton, who uh, founded Yes Magazine, and he's written a number of books. Um, is is on our advisory board, and and he's saying. And by the way, there's a, a video, an introductory video on our webpage um, that he's a part of, and he's saying that the people who have been the the most disadvantaged by this system are the ones who have insights into what isn't working, and those are the people that we need to look to for um, for for leadership, and so. Um, he, he's he's part of the group, but he um, he is encouraging more women to step forward and do what what Fred was suggesting, which is hey maybe we can change some some rules, maybe we can do things a bit differently. We were talking a, a few minutes ago, Ricky, about the sort of entrance of women into the uh, into the work world, uh, which I guess the. The wave really came on in the 1970s or so uh, after a long period in which uh, it was mainly male breadwinners and uh, women uh, as uh, helpmates and homemakers and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I sort of remember the critique in those days of uh, a lot of women saying that it was important to get out and into the working world for their own sense of uh, self-actualization and, and economic betterment for themselves and so on. Obviously, uh, it's been an imperfect project. Uh, we still see a big wage gap between men and women. We see gaps between the uh, Social Security uh, returns of uh, elderly men versus elderly women, etc., because Social Security is tied to wages uh, during one's working life. Um do you feel like, uh, I mean, obviously I would expect that you think a lot more progress needs to be made uh, on this front. Uh, am I roughly right about that? Sure, yes, I, I think so. Um, I, the second um, webinar that we're sponsoring, which is uh, going to happen on, uh, let's see, I think it's October 27th. Let me double-check that. Um, mm-hmm. It's on the website, but the the second conversation is something called um, the Invisible Woman, uh, and the way it's about the way the the GDP, the gross domestic product, um, leaves out um, women's any kind of caring activity, and including the care that we get from um, Mother Nature. You know, none of that is visible in the GDP. The GDP is simply an income statement of all the money that we made and um, all the money that exchanged hands. Uh, if, if it didn't earn you money, then it doesn't get counted. And yeah. that leaves out a great deal that is really, really important to women in particular, I think, uh, come up short in that department, as you mentioned, with the Social Security uh, situation. But um, I think I think we all come up short of... Uh, you know, on things that we really care about, things that are really important. And so we're going to be talking with uh, Rianne Eisler, who, uh, with her Center of Partnership Studies, has come up with, a, and, and working with a team of economists, has come up with something called the Social Wealth um, Economic Indicators. 
and uh, ways that to to look at the economy and additional ways um, to to assess uh, not just the the other work that's happening, but the relationship between uh, economic well-being and um, the investments that we're making in those areas that enable caring to take place. Yeah. Um, and and we've got uh, a, a wonderful young woman. Um, her name is um, uh, she's got a compl- complicated name. Her name is Corolla uh, Cara Jabola Corolla. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and she's from uh, Hawaii, and she is the um, the executive director of the Women's Commission in in Hawaii. The same job that Carrie Brown has here in in Vermont, and mm-hmm. um, when the COVID emergency happened, she got a lot of um, organizations together to look at w- the situation with the COVID and came up with something on government stationery called the, the Feminist Post-COVID Economic Recovery Plan, and she's mm. going to be part of this conversation, too. Um, so. I have to interrupt because we're almost out of time. Um, if folks want to find out about these webinars, you, they can go to your website? Yes. And what is the, what is the website so people can do that? It's All right. Well, Ricky Gard Diamond, thank you very much for your, uh, for uh, coming on and sharing some of these ideas with us. Find out more at that uh, at that website, folks. And uh, meanwhile, we're going to uh, head into a top-of-the-hour break for some CBS News. We'll be talking to Leonard Steinhorn from CBS just on the other side. Stay with us. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Thanks for staying with us in the second hour of our program on this uh, Wednesday morning. And uh, want to uh, introduce our next guest, Leonard Steinhorn from CBS News is with us. Good morning, Leonard. Hello. Not hearing. Hello? Hello. Are you there, Leonard? I'm here. Excellent. I'm glad, to, glad we can connect. Uh, hey, um, so much going on, it's hard to know where to begin, but obviously uh, one place would be the uh, debate that is scheduled for tonight between uh, Mike Pence, the uh, Republican incumbent vice president, and uh, Kamala Harris, the Democratic nominee chosen by uh, Joe Biden to uh, try to unseat Mike Pence. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, what, what, are we, uh, what, what do you think the big... Uh, questions are that are going to be answered tonight. Look, it's sort of bizarre that the debate between President Trump and Joe Biden from last week seems like long ago history. Um, so we're in this sort of warp speed news cycle, and uh, you have to assume that what these potential vice presidents are going to say is going to have an impact because with two septuagenarian uh, top of the ticket leaders, um, 
either Mike Pence or Kamala Harris could step into the White House at some point. So it's really important to be able to talk about what they might do as president, how they see the world, what policies they support. Um, They'll be discussing, certainly, the administration's uh, response to coronavirus. Uh, They'll be discussing issues related to race relations to the Supreme Court, likely to issues related to religion and abortion. Um, They'll be talking about the economy. Healthcare, for sure, which is a deep concern among so many Americans, particularly with this pandemic. We'll be talking about foreign policy. So there are going to be a lot of issues covered, but the larger question is how each of them approaches it. And I, I'll just say this uh, fairly quickly that I think Kamala Harris uh, has, you know, uh, sort of a lot of real opportunities, but a lot of real trap doors. And so her opportunities or to go after the president's record on COVID. Um, for sure, not only his what he's done, but what he's said, how they've acted. Look at what's going on in the White House um, as a super spreader place. Um, you know, you have to be able to touch on that without hitting too hard against a president who's, who's sick. Um, and I think she'll be tough on the Supreme Court issues and on women's issues. Um, so she's going to go after the president's record force Mike Pence to defend the president's record and the president's character and temperament. But she has a difficult time, too, because as a woman, um, there's a double standard in terms of how we evaluate women. You know, if you're very strong in a debate, you know, we see women as uh, women as aggressive and men as decisive. Um, if she gets too angry or indignant in the debate over things that anyone should get indignant over, she might fall into that trope about black women being too angry. So she not only has to deal with the issues with her own record, with defending Joe Biden, um, but with the stereotypes that are going to be sort of uh, projected onto her by people, even sometimes unconsciously. It is a uh, it's a tough assignment that she has. What do you think Mike uh, Pence will be trying to do to press his advantage? Well, he's going to try to put Kamala Harris on the defensive and suggest that she's sort of going to be a shadow president um, with a radical left-wing agenda. This is one of the lines that the Trump campaign has been using all along, suggesting that the Democratic Party is too far left, that she's herself is far left, even though she's sort of a, you know, a moderate liberal. She certainly is not as progressive as Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, but I think because she's an African-American woman, they'll try and press that because of the perceptions that she may be more radical left. So I think they're going to push that. She's going to have to defend herself. He'll he'll be going after her record in the past in the Senate. Um, He'll be making her defend some things about Joe Biden. Um, So she has to be prepared for that. So he's you know, he's a very good debater. You saw how he beat Tim Kaine in 2016. He's calm. He's measured. He speaks, you know, sort of very confidently, but with sort of a gentle voice. This is a guy who trained himself in talk radio. He knows how to communicate with the public, communicate through the media. Uh, and so I do think that uh, he'll be pressing those those tough issues but doing it in sort of a, a Mike Pence way, which isn't to get too angry, isn't to get too over the top, and tries to make himself out to be the adult in the room who's, who everyone can have confidence in if he steps into the Oval Office if necessary. Yeah, it's a, um, it is going to be fascinating tonight. I mean, it'll sort of be, I, I think, uh, I hope more, more uh, substantive than 
last week's debate was certainly last week's debate uh, very quickly went off the rails and never really got back on. So uh, let's hope that uh, tonight there's more interesting stuff to be taken away from it other than just bombast and yelling. So um, I, I do have to ask you quickly uh, your thoughts about the the president really made sort of made theater out of his return to the White House from the hospital. Uh, do you think that that helps him with anybody or does that hurt him or is it uh, not really going to have any effect long term? Well, I think it reinforces the perception of him, him among his base. Um, look, he equates weakness with losing. So he wanted only to show strength and defiance and confidence that he's tougher than this disease that has felled so many. And that's what his supporters like. His strength, his defiance, is willing to stick his thumb in the eye of the establishment. But whether his base is charged up or not may be irrelevant. We know they're already enthusiastic to vote for him. It's whether people outside of his base uh, feel how they feel and what they're taking from this. And I think for him, basically to say, you know, don't let this dominate your lives. I mean, you know, there are viral videos going around uh, the Internet right now where people are saying, what do you mean don't let it dominate your life? You're suggesting that because somebody in my family got sick and died from coronavirus, that this is on me, that I should feel okay not letting it dominate my life? Where's your empathy? Where's your compassion? So I think uh, part of the effort to portray himself as strong and to minimize uh, the coronavirus against his strength and fortitude um, has sort of a ripple effect of making him seem a little less sort of empathic uh, and a little less concerned about the many Americans who have had to deal with this and who it's upended their lives in so many ways, whether it's through health, through family members dying, through losing a job or anything like that. So I do think that uh, that's there are a couple of different messages coming out of the same platform here, and it depends who you are and how you receive it. Yeah, it's uh, really pretty amazing. I read a fascinating column this past weekend about uh, about uh, Trump sort of pushing a, a philosophy that uh, was, uh, I guess, first uh, enunciated by uh, Nietzsche back in the late 19th century, German philosopher, about uh, the... Uh, Overman, Superman, or whatever, uh, beyond good and evil, and all this kind of thing. And uh, boy, you know, I, it just it struck me that this kind of fit the picture of somebody trying to present himself as uh, just invincible. You know, uh, coronavirus is uh, apparently not kryptonite or something. I don't know, <laughs> but it just. Well, uh, I mean, somehow pretty, uh, pretty the president. Yeah, somehow he's been able to come back from bankruptcies. Um, from you know failures in a lot of his businesses to being down in the polls in 2016, he sort of sees himself you know uh, having overcome the Russia investigation, which he calls a witch hunt. I mean, this is a man you know if you look at the sort of sort of Christian frame of, of persecution, persecution and resurrection, and so he likes to portray himself as somebody who's. Uh, always being pushed against the wall, but he fight backs and he comes back and wins. And that's the image he has of himself, which is, I think, why he's saying that uh, this election is rigged and he's casting doubt on it, because if, in fact, he does lose, he doesn't want it to be seen that he lost. He wants it to be seen that it was stolen from him and it was unfair because he cannot accept any notion other than he's 
a winner and that he's constantly resurrected from all of the uh, difficulties and the persecution that's been thrown against him. All right. Well, uh, Leonard Steinhorn, uh, excellent analysis as always. Thank you very much for joining me this morning from CBS News. Leonard Steinhorn. Thanks for having me. The Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife is out with a new podcast series where uh, they're going to be, they are uh, talking about various programs and uh, issues facing uh, things the department are doing and the issues facing our wildlife and our fisheries here in the state of Vermont. And uh, we're going to be talking with uh, a couple of folks from the um, uh, Fish and Wildlife Department. Uh, First up, I think, is going to be, well, actually, I guess we do have uh, also Tom Lacey from the Fish and Wildlife Department and uh, and Lewis Porter, the commissioner there, and uh, we're going to have a little conversation. Who wants to go first on talking about the uh, podcast that uh, the department has launched here? Well, uh, Dave, uh, Tom's the Tom's the brains of the op- operation on that front, so uh, why don't we start off with him? Okay, Tom, sure. uh, t- tell us about the podcast. Good morning, and thank you for joining us, by the way. <laughs> no problem. I want to give a shout-out to my dad. He might be listening. This will be a big surprise for him. I know he'd be excited. I did not tell him beforehand. So, anyways. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, the podcast. We've been, you know, running around the state, interviewing people uh, on topics related to wildlife, related to our work, and, and trying to give a fresh spin on things and make those topics accessible the people around the edges who might be interested or kind of just getting their legs under them. And and uh, we're six episodes in. We're excited about it. We're excited about the future of it. We, we sent over a clip. I don't know if we'll be able to play that. Uh, but if not, I can kind of talk about some of the episodes if you want. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I'm told that uh, that's not going to work. We don't. Uh, we didn't get get it into our system in in time no to uh, to launch it on the air this morning. But uh, I, I do want to hear about uh, some of the content here. What have the what have the subjects been of the podcast so far? Uh, and uh, and then I also want to find out about where people can find them. Yeah, well, first you can you can go on to vtfishandwildlife.com and and click on about us and you'll see the you'll see the podcast right there okay uh, a couple of the ep- we, a couple of the episodes we've done so far are you know the clip i sent over which you know you should go and really listen to this one it's a really good one it it covers a lot of the stuff you know the themes we'll talk about today and it's a, a, a turkey season recap from two young women who you know, I think they told the story in December, back when we could, you know, meet face-to-face and do all that kind of stuff. And yeah. we, we hosted, the clip has so much nostalgia because there's a, a crowd in the background, and it's a packed <laughs> bar in Burlington. And you can just feel the warmth in the room and and the hum of just being surrounded by people. And you should really go listen to this clip after the, after the okay. program. But anyway, anyway... Uh, you know, they get up there. We we put a, a hat around the room, and people put their names in the hat. And I don't think they were even expecting to tell this story, but they got up there, and they were goofy as all hell, and they were just like telling their, you know, recap of their first season learning how to turkey hunt together. And mm. it, you know, it's just they just had so much humility and so much humor, and just the fearlessness that. Uh, you know, is 
admirable. And I think it's kind of exactly what we're trying to do with the show is show that, that you, you don't have to be an expert and you don't have to, you know, be perfect right off the bat. If you're following the rules and you're, you're, you know, you're being safe and, and all those things, of course, uh, you know, you don't have, you can learn gradually. It's not like you're jumping off a cliff. Uh, and so they were talking, they were talking about going into the bow shop and, you know, like talking to the guy about the different types of strings and, you know, admitting that they knew nothing about that. And, you know, just, <laughs> they were just, they just had such a humor about it. That's, and, that's fun. Uh, that was a, that was such a great episode of the podcast. I, I was listening to it while I was making dinner uh, a little while ago, and, and I was just laughing out loud because it was so funny and so well done and so spontaneous. And, you know, I think that that, that episode really gets to what sort of what we're trying to do with the podcast, which is, you know, hunting has long been kind of viewed as this, macho competitive thing where you're supposed to be an expert and and you you're trying to prove your expertise versus everybody else and the podcast is really trying to highlight a a different uh a different side of hunting a different approach to hunting which is you know it's okay uh, one of the one of the podcast episodes is called uh, start with squirrels and ask for help because that's that's what people need to do when they're getting into hunting and Whatever age you are starting in hunting, or or even if you're if you've been doing it for a long time, there's plenty to learn and plenty to do to embarrass yourself. And we just want to acknowledge that and and recognize that that you know hunting is good. Uh, as Tom says, if you follow following the rules, hunting is a good thing. And however you do it, however you enjoy it, is a, is a good thing. Even if you're only uh, a quarter of the way to being a, a skilled hunter, or, or uh... Uh, that's okay. Is that the uh, that, that basic message? So some of the most skilled hunters I know, much more skilled than I am, have had some of the most embarrassing things happen to them <laughs> in the woods, and uh-huh. that's okay. Um, it's, yep. it's all about if it's all about connecting with the landscape and connecting with nature, and uh, and however you do that is okay, um, provided you do it safely and and following the rules. Yep, yeah. and. Uh, so there are six episodes so far. Is there uh, sort of a number that you have in mind, or is this an indefinite thing? Or and how often do they come out, uh, Tom? They the, it, it's a bit of an erratic schedule, so I'm not going to uh, commit you know commit some to a schedule right here on air. But uh, we are you know aiming for one a month, and um, and you know we've got some coming out pretty soon. With this hunting season, we've got some hare hunting happening, a couple more, you know, mentorship type things. Again, just kind of showing that this is a an approachable thing. You know, you can learn gradually. You can ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask questions and that kind of thing. Um, sure. No, yeah. there's no there's no set schedule that I'll that I'll say here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and yeah. and uh, is are there any of the podcasts uh, so far devoted to fishing or is it all hunting? We've had a couple hunting. We had one fish. Our most recent one was highlighting, uh, was called Shore Fishing in Burlington. And that was somewhat inspired by, by COVID. Um, you know, I was just, I live in Burlington myself and mm-hmm. kind of occupying my days after work and, you know, after all the, you know, this desk work or whatever else I'm doing, you know, at the end of the day, I would hop on my bike 
go down to the bike path and find a, with my fishing pole and find a place to throw a line in. And I kind of thought that was a silly thing to do at first. Like I didn't really know that's the thing that people were doing. And then I started seeing just more and more people doing that more and more people with their fishing rods, like kind of broken in half and stuck in the back of their backpack or, you know, um, and there's a lot of spots to go. You know, there, you've got Oak Ledge, you've got uh, Perkins Pier, you have the, the the delta of the Winooski River, you know, is a great spot. You've got, uh, at the time, the causeway was under construction, so that was, we couldn't really highlight that. But that's mm-hmm. like, you know, like, that's an incredible place to fish from shore. And you're right out there in the middle of the lake, and... Um, so, so that was kind of the inspiration of that episode was kind of ha- to highlight those opportunities to let people know, hey, you know, you don't have to go 10 miles from your house if you live in Burlington. You can hop out your front door, you know, hop on your bike, head down to the water and, uh, you know, have fun with it, be outdoors, disconnect. And I hope that that message got through to people around the state, you know, go to a stream crossing near you. Uh, you know, go to, you know, if you live in Rutland or Montpelier or whatever, you have these rivers and, and opportunities near you. And it was, you, don't uh, boat, you don't necessarily need a car. Um, yeah. And that was kind of the, the messaging there. It, it was right. a, it was an episode I was really glad to, that, that, that Tom highlighted because we've got this amazing resource in Lake Champlain, but it can seem kind of unapproachable to people unless they have, can afford to have a boat and have a place to keep a boat. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's not there. Are, there are plenty of ways up and down the up and down the the shores of the lake and 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 in Burlington even as as Tom points out where you can access the lake for different things and in different ways and I just think it's really important that people you know we've got this great resource and this great you know sort of jewel of the state and and sometimes I feel like it's it's closed off to people who 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 uh, who don't have access to, to boats. And that's really that's really a perception, though. Uh, you really can get there and, and enjoy it as well. Tom, what do you what do you catch when you're fishing on the shore there in Burlington? And uh, are they good for eating, or do you throw them back, or what's the drill there? I so good question. I've been catching some bass. Uh, we've been doing some fishing clinics down there um, with some youth groups, and we've been catching bass. We've been small bass. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, panfish, that kind of thing. Um, I know that there's some people who I watched somebody pull a fat walleye out of the out of the Winooski River Delta as I was <laughs> shooting that episode, and and they were definitely planning on eating that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she, you know, she said she's just going to salt it up, butter it up, and that's all you really got to do. But you know, yeah. I think people yeah. have their people have their concerns about about the lake or whatever. You know. One message I heard from um, someone on staff with us is that, you know, the the Burlington Bay is just a lot more fluid than people think. It's not like the water is kind of still in the, you know, the water is moving around the lake. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, maybe I might not be the best person to speak on this, but, um, you know, it's a reasonable thing to to be interested in doing and, and consuming. Um, hmm. Lewis, are you, do you have a message on that or? Yeah, I mean, for for some of the some of the larger fish species in the lake, the Vermont Health Department has advisories on how often you should eat them because of because of mercury primarily. 
But I, you know, fish, local fish is is extremely an extremely healthy food. Um, you know, there are there are issues with mercury, but frankly, there are issues with mercury in fish you buy at the grocery store as well. And and there are consumption advisories for for commercially fished uh, fish as well. Um, around the world that's just an impact of what we've done as as people but you know for occasionally eating there's there's no worries and especially the sort of the rule of thumb is generally the lower down the food chain you go the less chance there is of of uh, toxins like mercury accumulating and also those are extremely sustainable fisheries perch rock bass uh, the the fish lower down on the uh, panfish like 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 uh, pumpkin seeds or bluegills those fish lower down the food chain aren't as old they haven't been eating other fish uh, or at least haven't been eating as many of them and they haven't bioaccumulated some of those some of those toxins that can be an issue but you know in general I would say the health benefits of getting out and fishing and eating the fish that you catch. Uh, far away any health concerns, provided that you you know you should go by those health department recommendations on how frequently you eat them. Right. Okay. Um, and the uh, do, do, have you found uh, uh, Tom that the that you were saying that you were you were kind of impressed or surprised with the the numbers of other people you saw down along the lakeshore fishing and um, you know I know that during this time, especially with the COVID crisis, people out of work worried about uh, groceries and keeping food in the house and so on. Uh, is that part of the motivation here? Are people getting out and fishing more because they, A, have time, and B, have uh, have need for food? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I think all of the above. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people I talked to were, were getting, were lapsed anglers. They were kind of getting their fishing licenses earlier in the season because, you know, when things hit around March, April, it was kind of like, what can I do? Um, yeah. And yeah. and that was an obvious choice. I mean, to disconnect, to, 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 you know, to have a moment with yourself or with your family out there is, is a powerful thing when the world is, is kind of <laughs> chaotic. And um, yep. so I, that was certainly an aspect. There's certainly people out there who, who are supplementing their groceries. Of course, um, there's nothing better than, coming home with a you know a nice bass or a trout or something and and being able to save that that grocery you bought for the next day you know is, yep. uh, you know it's a good feeling and uh you know i think all, the answer is all of the above i think lewis may have some more stats on on the boost and angling this this season um but we've, well we've definitely maybe, maybe we should uh, get those just after the break because we do need to go to a bottom of the hour uh, cbs news minute a couple words from our sponsors uh here on the dave graham show on wdev fm and am and uh when uh, we return we'll have uh, more conversation with tom lacy and lewis porter of the uh, vermont department of fish and wildlife we'll be back in just a couple minutes folks Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. 
It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. My guests are uh, Commissioner Lewis Porter and uh, Tom Lacey of the uh, Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife. We've been talking about a, a new uh, series of uh, podcasts. I guess there are six of them up already. You can, I gather, go and, uh, and uh, check out any one of them that might uh, might appeal to you. Uh, if you want the, uh, the Fishing in Burlington podcast, there's that one. There's uh, uh, one that it, where a couple people get introduced to uh, turkey hunting, and it sounds like you have a riot of a time doing that. And uh, uh, Tom, what are uh, what are a couple of the other podcasts uh, that are already up and available to folks? Yeah, we've got we've got one that highlights our our game wardens and and speaks to a little bit of their their effort, their search and rescue uh, type work, which is you know something that applies to to all Vermonters. You know, if you get lost in the woods, it might be a game warden who finds you. You know what I mean? And yep. whether you're hunting, fishing, or just going out for a walk with your kid, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and those are pretty powerful stories, you know. Um, yeah, it was a pretty pretty straightforward, you know. Can you talk about some of your rescue missions? And that's a hard thing. Um, so that's a pretty interesting one. We have one about our summer camps, which you know I think a lot of people might not know about. Uh, we've got two summer camps. They didn't happen this summer, unfortunately, but, you know, it's a great program. It's, it's affordable. It's, it's, you know, available. There's scholarships for it. You know, it's look into it for next year. If you've got a kid yeah. who's, I forget how old the kids are. I think like 12 to 14. Is that right, Lewis? Yep. And, where do they, uh, so where, where are the camps located? There's uh, there's one in Woodbury and, and one uh, in Castleton outside Rutland. Uh, on, uh-huh. uh, on Bombazine. Oh, I see. Okay. Huh. And, and they're, uh, they're really you... amazing. I, it's the it's the best deal uh, out there going. I think for for families who want to have their have their kids go to summer camp because about half of the kids who go each year are uh, go on scholarships on need need based scholarships. So we we don't turn anybody away uh, because they uh, because they can't afford it. We we through partnerships with rod and gun clubs and other kinds of organizations. Uh, have a scholarship fund that'll will we'll get you there if you, if you want to go. Wow! And the uh, the kids are um, uh, what are they doing at the camp? Are they learning about uh, hunting skills and fishing and so on? So we do a we do a basic camp, and then you can come back another year for an advanced camp, and then mm-hmm. many of those kids come back to be junior counselors and work with us, you know, in their late teens. Um, so yeah, they they learn a lot of biology, a lot of wildlife management. They learn some about hunting and fishing. Um, they they do everything from from normal camp you know camp stuff, campfires and storytelling stuff like that to to learning how to how to shoot a bow. And uh, they're they're really amazing. They're really amazing programs. I I, uh, I can't say enough good things about the, the folks who run them. Do they end up uh, uh, often? Uh growing up to, you know, go to school and study fish and wildlife type subjects and then uh, maybe work for your department in the as your next generation of uh, of game wardens and other other employees and so on. Some do for sure. We we definitely have employees that have that, that first got to got to know the department through through the camps and and others uh, others who go and do those that similar work in other states uh, for sure. And and others who don't, but uh, but who go and 
go off and and be doctors or or whatever else they do and but they they've had that that sort of basic grounding in in wildlife and and outdoor skills that I yeah. hear from from many people uh that I run into that that it was an important part of their of their growing up that's uh, that's that's terrific uh uh, hey, listeners out there, if any of you have memories of going to these camps uh, when you were young or maybe uh, uh, you're still young and you're, you just uh, are not that far removed from having attended these camps, what have they meant to you? Call us up and let us know. 244-1777 is the local number in Waterbury. The toll-free number is uh, 1-877-291-8255 or 291-TALK. And uh, we do have a listener on the line. I believe it's Fred from Newbury. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Hey, uh, it's very interesting you're talking about uh, uh, getting lost. When you have a hunter safety course, do you have any uh, loss preventing techniques that you teach the kids? Like, for instance, learning how to use a compass or perhaps even being able to plot a course from uh, X to X? Yeah. Good we, question, Fred. Great question. We do have a, an orienteering section in the, in the hunter education uh, uh, program, both the in person and now online. Of course, at the conservation camps, those orienteering sections are, are more advanced and more in-depth, and we teach, you know, compass use and, and plotting a course on a map and, and other, other techniques to avoid, uh, to avoid getting lost. You know, it, the, the search and rescue uh, uh, part of, the, of our work is, is, is interesting because people use their cell phones now and they, and they assume that uh, that they will always be able to find their way back on on the map on their cell phones and, and it's a great tool and a lot of people you know use that and help themselves whether they're hunting or just hiking or whatever but cell phones run out of batteries and they get broken and they get lost and they get wet and uh, so it's it's good to have those that knowledge of, of how to how to get yourself out of the woods if if you need to as well and and if the, if the worst comes to worst and and you can't do that. Uh, as Tom says, it's likely that a warden or a warden's dog will be uh, will be the first one to find you. <laughs> map map reading map reading is very difficult because uh, uh, I've done some hunting and stuff with some friends, and we had a guy come up from uh, uh, he wasn't hunting in our area, and so we took him out hunting in the area, and uh, we had a we had a topo map, and he had a compass, and we asked him if he could get back to the car. We're using a topo map. In the compass, and he thought he could, but he couldn't. And the reason why he couldn't, because he didn't know how to interpret the map to match the topography. That's exactly. very difficult to do. Can you do that? I bet you can't do that. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm. I don't know. I haven't done it in a long time. I did. I did learn about it when I was in school and learn how to do it. But you're, you're exactly right. Both interpreting the topography to the map. And interpreting magnetic north from true north and drawing a bearing from that is uh, it's a real skill. Yeah, how about all, right. know, all you have to do is all you have to do is just uh, put your map on a flat surface and then put the straight edge of the compass on one of the one of the vertical lines on the map and then orient the map to north and then the map is automatically oriented to magnetic north. Is that not true? Fred, I got to go, but thank you for the call. Some uh, some interesting questions there, and uh, I believe we have another listener checking in. Uh, Dave from Plainfield. Good morning, Dave. 
morning, Dave. This is the other Dave from Plainfield, by the way. <laughs> okay. Uh, Commissioner Porter, I've heard you say more than once on radio programs, including this one, that you have, quote, the best job in the world, unquote. I'm yep. going to admit right now, at age 77, I've never had the best job in the world. <laughs> so could you please tell the listening audience what the best job in the world consists of? Now, I don't I don't want you to uh, to uh, repeat your official job description. Sure. In other words, can you give us a detailed description of, of your typical work day? Now, don't answer my question by saying no day is typical, okay? Yeah. yeah How long is your typical work day? Uh, if you can't remember what, it was, what you did yesterday, describe what you're going to do today, even though this radio part is not your typical routine. Okay? Sure. There's well, uh, not only well, doing me, interviews is fairly typical for me. I do quite a, quite a few of them, and I enjoy them. Um, okay. The well, a lot of, me job, and a lot of other taxpayers would like to know what the best job in the world is, okay? Sure. So I'm going to hang uh, up with uh, Justin. Uh, like, All right. Thanks like, for the call, Dave. Like most people who who are managers of, of a state department, uh, most of my work consists of uh, writing emails, meetings, and talking to people. Um, so that's fairly typical for anybody who's a commissioner in state government or a secretary or, or, or any managerial job in state government. What makes my job so great and what makes me enjoy it so much is the people that I get to work within within the department and outside of it. And they are... They are truly the most dedicated group of people I, I, I've met and I've gotten the opportunity to work for, and they are, they are completely dedicated to their mission and to the and to the uh, mission of the department, and, and that's what makes my job so great. I mean, from the from a day-to-day -day standpoint, my job looks a lot like uh, most people who are commissioners in, in this state government or or probably any state government. I I talk to legislators, I talk to constituents that have issues, I have meetings, we we have planning meetings, we have meetings about everything it, it feels like um and uh, maybe a little different in covid most of those meetings are by computer or telephone now um but but from the from a day-to-day -day standpoint my job looks like a lot of a lot of people who are managers in, in a government agency but the people who work in our department whether those are wardens or ecologists or biologists or people who work in the fish hatcheries uh they are incredibly dedicated and incredibly committed to the mission of the department and that that's what makes it great that sounds like a uh, pretty pretty good uh, job description there for you, yeah. and uh, and you, Lewis, actually just uh, for folks who don't, may not know, you've been at this a little while now. You, if I recall correctly, your tenure in this job uh, precedes our current governor, for instance, and you were a what do they call it a holdover, I guess, from the prior administration, right? Le leftovers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. I uh, I was appointed by Governor Shumlin and, and have stayed on under Governor Scott, and I've been in the job. Uh, I, I guess uh, over six years at this point, which is which is quite a while for for a commissioner, and I'm I'm lucky to lucky to be able to do that. Yeah, that's uh, that is getting to be a bit of a tenure now. Uh, it's, uh, and and I recall uh, in past years, uh, the job tends to uh, you know that 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 position tends to turn over a little more frequently. But uh, you must well, be doing something right, Lewis. I'm not sure. Maybe it's... so. He still got me beat. And, uh, Who's that? Ed, Ed, Ed uh, Wayne LaRoche, who was the commissioner for the entirety of uh, Governor Douglas's term, and uh, Ed Keogh, I think, was commissioner for 17 years. So he, he's wow. got, uh, he's got a few years on me still. But you, but you're right. Uh, I, I've been I've been fortunate to be able to stay on in the job and to and to keep doing it. Yeah, it's uh and and uh, 
and it sure, certainly sounds like you uh, you enjoy it, and and uh, I enjoy getting you on the radio here to talk about it. Uh, uh, t- Tom Lacey, um, the, uh, the the podcasts are uh, are they here for the foreseeable future? Do you think that uh, this is going to be a pretty much permanent fixture of what the department does out there now? Well, that's I think that's above my pay grade. I'm going to keep making them as long as they want them. Uh, I think it's you know there's been a good response. Uh, I think that there's a lot more topics to dive into and there's a lot of different ways to dive into different topics. And, uh, you know, I see no reason to, to stop, to stop now. I feel like we're kind of just getting going. Yep. It's uh, still a fairly new enterprise. I'm, I'm thinking once again, Tom, you go to the uh, department's main page on the, uh, on the World Wide web. Uh, and I think it's a, a link called about us. Is that it? Yep, about us. It's also right on the homepage. It's pretty easy to find. The name is the Vermont Fish and Wildlife Podcast. It's easy to remember. You can just Google those words and it'll pop up. It's yeah, that's another those, way to go. So. And, uh, and Tom can double-check me on this, but on I, I'm pretty Apple sure that you can also get it through Spotify or the podcast app on your iPhone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Another Yet another method to go there. Um, and uh, that, that's a... That's, uh, that's a, that's an important public service, I think, for you folks, because I think uh, one of the one of the uh, important jobs of an agency like the Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife is just to uh, uh, keep its public face up and uh, and in good shape and and getting uh, getting more people to understand what the issues are that are affecting our uh, wildlife and and fisheries in the state, and also get more people uh, interested in hunting and fishing and and the activities that are uh, that are, are overseen by the uh, by the department, because uh, obviously, for many many people, uh, they are a key part of uh, what is li- what is what is worthwhile about living in a beautiful rural environment like we have here in Vermont. Uh, Lewis, uh, speaking of hunting and fishing, I, I did uh, mention to you yesterday when we chatted that I wanted to check in with you just about the general state of things. I know this is uh, uh, getting into October now. We're getting into very uh, in the midst of uh, a, a couple or a few different hunting seasons already and uh, more to come. So uh, what is, uh, what's, what's going on out there right now? Yeah, this is this is just a really exciting time of year. Uh, so uh, archery deer season uh, in Vermont is open, and archery turkey and bear uh, early bear season's been open for a little while. Uh, and and not too in the not too distant future here, we're going to have uh, the duck season open up again, and and uh, and the the late bear season, and and of course the. The, uh, the biggest of all of the seasons here in Vermont, the, the 16 days of, of rifle deer season uh, in, in November. So we're, we're starting into the, into the really the peak of the hunting seasons in the state, and, and simultaneously uh, there's quite a bit of good fishing going on uh, as well. The, the sort of normal um, trout seasons go through the end of the month. Uh, of course, it depends on which water body you're 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 uh, fishing, and it's important to know the the local the regulations on your local water water body. But in general, uh, the trout and and landlocked salmon season go to the end of the month, and and uh, bass seasons uh, open right now as well. So there's a, a whole lot going on, and and uh, it's really an exciting time of year for people who who, who like to participate in those seasons. 
And when uh, we've talked before, would you say overall that uh, we've talked before about a, a sort of an increase in interest here, especially in the uh, in the era of this coronavirus? Uh, you know, a lot of people are still out of work or reduced hours, and uh, and uh, have more time on their hands, and uh, and are looking for uh, additional sources of food and so on. All these things tending to increase uh, partic- participation in these activities. Uh, is that still the case? Yeah, it sure is, and and especially on the on the resident uh, fishing side, but but hunt, resident hunting as well. Sort of everything about this pandemic um, is leading people to to pick up uh, hunting and fishing again if they if they did it and then didn't or or start as as a hunter or an angler. Um, everything from from the as you mentioned the the more time people have to people of course are spending a lot of time with their families uh, that they're that they're you know socially distancing from other people but spending time with their families and and these are a lot of these uh, are are family activities that people engage in as a family that they do as a family or a family and close friends so that that encourages that people I think also. As Tom mentioned, you know, this is a, a period of insecurity and kind of turmoil for people, and people are looking to the things that, that sustain them, you know, physically and mentally and, and, and even uh, even spiritually, I'd say. And and these are activities that do that as well. And and, uh, and so it's sort of a, a lot of things are, are coming together to, to encourage people into these activities, and we're glad to see it. Yeah, and... and um... Suppose you are a Vermont family, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe parents and a couple of kids or something, and um, and and the, and the, nobody in, in this household has ever hunted before, and you say to yourself, uh, you know, th- this is an important part of, our, of the tradition in this state. Uh, maybe I should t- take it up. Um, what uh, what services does the department offer for uh, somebody in that situation? Yeah, and and you know that's sort of exactly the point, or, or one of the points of the of the podcast series is giving people a way to learn about it and 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 get some ideas of how to start. But but as we mentioned, we mentioned the conservation camps; those are an option for for people of the of the those early teen years. Um, we also, of course, do the do hunter education classes online and in person that, that will provide you some education. We have a mentoring program. Um, that that is connecting mentors with adult hunters. Uh, we also have youth uh, seasons for for a number of a number of species that there's a special special uh, uh, weekend season to generally to uh, to get uh, folks to get kids out with a with a mentor, whether that's a family member or somebody else. So we do a variety of those things. But you know you're right, Dave. That the it can be an intimidating thing to to start into um, if you don't come from a background of it or or didn't grow up doing it or have family and friends that, that do it. And we're trying the best we can to to make it accessible to people who who didn't have that that opportunity. And I think we're making some inroads. This this podcast is part of that, but but we're doing other things as well. And we're open to other ideas. If people have ideas that have barriers that they've experienced, we want to hear about them, and and try to do what we can to to eliminate those those barriers. Uh, in in general, I would encourage people to think about uh, small game hunting as a as an entry point. Um, squirrels, uh, ruffed grouse, um, woodcock. These these are species that are that are you know rabbits and hares. These, these are species that are accessible in a lot of parts of the state and and are a good uh, uh, point of entry to to uh, 
beginning that that kind of hunting. Uh, turkeys are also uh, turkey hunting is also a way that that I think a lot of people get into the activity. My niece, my niece went out and bagged a turkey not long ago, and boy, was she excited! <laughs> I bet she was. <laughs> hey. That was a, that was a big uh, that was a big Facebook post and a lot of excitement in the family too. So, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that's a you know because. I think I think people have a, a, a real feeling of accomplishment, especially young folks in their first uh, their first experience like that. That's uh, that is that is really something. Hey, uh, we are uh, fast approaching the top of the hour, which means we're about out of time uh, for this conversation here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. I want to thank uh, Tom Lacey and Commissioner Lewis Porter of the uh, uh, Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife for joining us this morning, and it's uh, it's really a pleasure to talk to you gentlemen. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. All righty, and uh, that's about uh, going to be about it for this edition of the Dave Graham Show. Thanks for listening, folks, and uh, we uh, will be back tomorrow morning with another, uh, another version of our show, and we'll be uh, obviously uh, looking for more uh, participation from our listeners. We always welcome calls and comments from folks checking in with us, uh, and uh, that'll be uh, something to look forward to tomorrow. Alrighty, uh, thank you so much. Have a good afternoon, everybody. Keep those masks up and the uh, social distancing going. Stay healthy. We'll talk to you all tomorrow.